0: Our scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Let's share in God's good word together. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. What would have that been like? Just just standing there and having this come down? The beautiful thing. My name is Mark Foster. I'm a founding senior pastor here. And I want to uh, share a little song I learned as a kid. Maybe you know it. If you do, sing along with me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Isn't it amazing that we, like, you just know that? It's just in your bones. It's just in who we are that Jesus is why we gather. Jesus is who we live and move and have our being. It's through him that all of this happens. That's why we keep the cross in the center of our worship. Yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. What a remarkable idea. What a remarkable idea that the God who rules the universe would come to us in a baby. Like one of us born to a peasant family with a feeding trough for his first bed. That God would choose to experience what it is to be human and the everydayness of life. That God Almighty would choose to know the joy and the sorrow and the love and the hate and the pain and the suffering and yes, even death. Jesus, obedient to his parents growing up in the family business, he ate and slept and wept and bled. And at roughly 33 years of age, he died. God came and got to know us in the person of Jesus. But even better, we get to know God now in the person of Jesus. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. We are in the sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, and it is all about Jesus. And that's why we're here. It's all about Jesus. And last week we began with God the Father. And we're also looking at what we believe here at Acts 2 in particular as a part of this larger faith that we are a part of. And so last week, if, if you know this, our dream is this. To create a people who sing God's praises, serve God's children, and share God's salvation until Christ comes again. We're going to talk more about Christ here in just a second. So that was week one. We, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, Justo Gonzalez, who was the youngest Ph.D. Uh, student at Yale in, in their uh, history, uh, is an amazing historian. I recommend him to you. He writes this. He says, By declaring God to be father, the creed was undermining fatherhood as it was then understood. At that time, slaves, children, wives, and all others were subject to the paterfamilias, and they were claiming a father above this earthly one. The, the father figure in, in Jesus' time, in the time following Jesus, was, uh, could be a very scary figure. And we talked about how in, in my situation, for example, the familias in my family would be my father. And even at 54 years of age, if my dad, who's 88, didn't want to release me from family responsibilities, I would not be released until he released me to have my own life. And, and, and the Christian church comes in and says, no, there is a father even greater than the ones you know. Because if God is father, then all of us humans, brothers and sisters, they all matter to God, including you and me. And if God is almighty, all-powerful, and everywhere, then you and I, we're never alone. And ultimately, we're safe. Now, this creed wasn't something that people just said just so that they would know what others believed. The creed actually evolved from the ancient baptismal formula in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's how folks were baptized then. That's how we baptize folks today. And it is important to remember, Gonzalez says, the distinction between believing in and believing that. The Creed affirms our belief that God is the creator of heaven and earth and that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, and so forth. We'll talk more about that next week. But then Gonzales says this, it affirms our belief in God, in God the Father, in Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. It is in these three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we live and move and have our being. We believe in God, not just that there is a God or that God exists. So the purpose of the creed then was to bolster particular points of doctrine that were under attack. There were people that started to say Jesus didn't really die and, be, and wasn't resurrected. There were people that claimed that he wasn't really divine. There were people that claimed all sorts of things about Jesus. And the early Christians said, no, 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 no. This is what we believe. It was, its purpose was to determine the identity of Christianity in the midst of a whole lot of other religions, a wide variety of them, superstitions and synchronistic belief systems circulating in the first centuries of the Christian era. We talked about all that last week in more detail. It's online if you'd like to go back and catch up with us. All of our sermons are. Week two today is I believe in Jesus Christ. Say this with me. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. That's what we believe. And it ties directly... We tie ourselves directly to that by our goal, which is the second thing we say each week. And read it with me. To help non-religious and non-active Christians become radical Christ followers. Well, if we're going to try to develop radical Christ followers, people that follow Jesus close enough to have the dust of our rabbi on ourselves, that's our goal. Then we have to know what Christ is. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, Christ is the Greek equivalent to the Messiah in Hebrew, which means anointed one and God's chosen king. This is the person. This is the king that has been waited for in Jewish history all along. When the prophets talk about the coming Messiah, they're talking about Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Messiah. And in ancient society, and certainly in the Old Testament, people were anointed as a sign of being set apart and consecrated for a particular role or function, Gonzalo says. So this Messiah, this anointed one, and they knew Jesus to be the anointed one, the supreme ruler... It's in Jesus of Nazareth who was and is God's chosen king for God's kingdom. Not for any particular kingdom. Not for the kingdom of Oklahoma or the kingdom of the United States or the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of this or the kingdom of that. No, the kingdom of God that never ends and has no boundaries. No boundaries. No time frame. Because in God's kingdom, that is where what God wants done is done. Period. Dot. It is truly shalom. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Everything as it should be. And there were moments through Jesus' life where we saw that happen. Matter of fact, you see that all the time in Jesus' life because Jesus is God. And when Jesus heals, you're seeing the kingdom of God. When Jesus teaches, you're seeing the kingdom of God. When the spirits leave and the demons flee, you're seeing the kingdom of God at work. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand when you see him. So what sets Christianity apart... From other faiths is our specific beliefs in Jesus we are Jesus people and we have 27 documents in the New Testament they're all written between roughly AD 49 or 50 which is Galatians which we looked at at our last series all the way up through 95 and they all tell us about Jesus they're, they're different accounts um, I believe many of those are eyewitness accounts that are then handed down and that's important Because it's not hearsay. These are people who walked with him and talked with him, knew him for 33 years, and some all the way through his ministry for those last three years of his life. And in A.D. 54, in one of the earlier writings, Paul quotes an early church hymn about Jesus in his letter to the Philippians. Now, you'll note that if Paul is going to quote somebody, there had to be writings before even Paul. So it's not that Paul at 49 or 50 was the first writings. There were writings that Paul knew of before that. They just don't happen to be in our canon or in our New Testament. They they didn't make the cut at 325 at the Council of Nicaea. And so in Philippians 2, Paul writes actually from these earlier documents... And he says this, Who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, yes, Jesus and God are equal, as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. Jesus humbled himself. We can learn a lot there. We probably just ought to stop here and call it a day. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is quoting from an earlier document that his forebears, our forebears, knew. So this evidence of Jesus and Jesus' existence, it's quite consistent and overwhelming. Right there, There's all sorts of accounts. Of course there's Christian accounts, but there's also Jewish accounts. Uh, Flavius Josephus um, was a Jewish uh, writer and historian in his time. He talks about Jesus. There are Roman writings about Jesus and, and how the followers of Christos um, were causing problems through the Roman Empire because they weren't yielding to Caesar as God, because he's not. And they were one of the only ones willing to say so. Now, this was interesting to me. If you're following along in the book Creed by Adam Hamilton, which is one of uh, a number of resources we're using for this series, um, and I hope you do, we, we have it on Wednesday nights and also on Sunday mornings. Um, one of the quotes in it is about this guy. I love this. He writes, Self-proclaimed agnostic, claiming neither faith or disbelief. Bart Ehrman spent years of study and an entire book examining the historical evidence for the existence of Jesus. Right? So this guy's a professor of religion. He's not necessarily a Christian and wasn't uh, a Jesus fan necessarily. And so I want you to see his quote. He says, Jesus did exist whether we like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Right? He's an academic. Right, Some of this stuff is hard to accept on, on a scientific side or a historical side. But he's like, look, I've studied the literature and this is just true. Jesus did exist whether we like it or not. And I would remind you that Dallas Willard says you are an eternal being that will never die. Supernatural. Embodied spirit. Whether you like it or not. So we have Jesus, whether we like it or not. And we have ourselves, whether we like it or not. The question is, how are those two going to come together so what about this jesus who is the messiah who is the king who is the christ well he grew up with jewish parents in a really tiny town around here we'd say it was a one stoplight town right and galilee the region of the roman province of syria at that time it's, it's no longer that uh, it's northern israel and so if if you um, know israel some of you've been there with me uh you can see nazareth all the way up here at the top the Sea of is right here. So this is, the brown part's more desert, the green part's more lush. And so you would travel down here to Jericho, take this really treacherous group here to Jerusalem and back. It was a good uh, couple days walk for sure. Um, and so that's, that's where Jesus grew up, out here in this little desert region. And the deserts of Judea um, are not all that welcoming uh, to tourists or otherwise, never have been. And so here's some of our tour group when we were shooting that in 2015, one of our trips... Um, and it's also very mountainous and, and rocky. And so it's, it's not, you know, an easy place. So when Jesus goes to the, you know, out to the desert, to the wilderness, this is where he's headed. And you can see that, you know, you wouldn't, you'd want to be careful, let's just say that, on this rocky part of Israel. This is where Jesus grew up. But he was really close to some really nice vacation spots. He really was. I mean, it was just a beautiful area. And so when, when they heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, you know what They said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, I've been to Nazareth. Are you kidding me? Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. Jesus was not known for where he was born or who he was born to. He became known because he was the power of God. The exact image and imprint of God our Father. Now, from Nazareth, Jesus begins his ministry and he moves it out of Nazareth... Uh, up to Capernaum. Now Capernaum's—it's pretty nice. You'll like Capernaum. Uh, the lakeside village of Capernaum, or the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, was home base for Jesus' ministry. He stayed there, uh, came in and out of there for about three years. And again, back to the map. Capernaum's at the very top, so you can see Nazareth here. Jesus basically brought his ministry up here, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It goes into the Jordan River, come down here to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea's dead because it has no outflow. Inflow, no outflow, kills you. That's a different sermon. It's a good one. But Capernaum's up here, right? And so, I mean, it's a beautiful place. I mean, it's it's got rivers and and springs, and and you can go there. And when the the Bible talks about water coming straight through the rock, it happens there. You can see it happen there. Uh, Now, the, the tour guides will tell you this. I don't know if it's true or not. But the tour guides will say that this water comes from the snow melt from a mountain far away. And it took about 2,000 years for it to get to there to there, so you're in the Jesus water of his time. I don't know, but it sounds cool. But, but it is so clear, and you stick your feet in it. It is ice cold, but I mean, it is a beautiful thing. And, you, and that's where Jesus hung out. It's in this area uh, where he would teach and preach, and people would ask him questions. It's not far from the location of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, you can, I mean, it's gorgeous. You've, you've got these lush flowers and you know, hibiscus and bougainvillea and on, all these other kinds of flowers. This is where Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount and it overlooks uh, the entire Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful thing. Matthew 9 describes Jesus' ministry like this. Then Jesus was, went about the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, God's kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. That was different. People didn't know gods of compassion. They knew gods of war. They knew gods of chaos. But Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus said this to his disciples. The harvest is plentiful. Still true, friends. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And all the folks that work in children's ministry and youth ministry around the world say, Amen. We need more workers. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest, Jesus, to send out labors into his harvest. This is prayer work, friends. And so when somebody calls you and says they've been praying, and your name has come on their heart, pay attention. Pay attention. It's important work. Jesus' ministry was marked by compassion for people that didn't, they, other people just didn't want to be around them. And Jesus was there for the sick, the marginalized, the lost. Now, in the Bible, when it says lost, Some people think that's pejorative or or like talking down. No, it's not. Only things that have value are lost. Right? If it didn't have value, it would just be garbage. You wouldn't lose it. It would just be gone. You wouldn't care. But everything that is lost has value, has a place. It's just not yet connected to its intended place. It's lost. It has value. It's important. And it was really over these lost people that were not yet in the and the kingdom of God in a way that would be helpful and, and, and beautiful for them. The religious folks didn't really want them. You, you may have heard the phrase, you know, you can't clean them before you catch them. And then somehow in church life, we want folks to get all cleaned up before they come in. Well, that's just dumb. If you, if you don't need Jesus, then why would you come here? That's why we say good morning sinners, because that's who we are. Good morning saints, that's who we are sometimes and still becoming. So it's in these conversations that continue today that Jesus found himself at odds with some of the religious authorities. And you say, well, well, why is that? Well, because Jesus was talking bad about him because he was telling the truth. He would say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves. And when others are going in, you stop them. You, You get this? These people aren't living the life that God wants for them. And then when people who are actually trying to live the life God wants for them, they're like, no, 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 not you. And that makes Jesus very upset. Now, I'm going to read. I hope you'll go to Matthew 23 because it, it, it's a lot longer than this. But when I say the word hypocrites, would you say that with me? I want you to see how serious Jesus is about this. So that's the first time. then the next time he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside you're full of bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. Right? This, this, is, this is what it is to say one thing and do another, to act better than. Jesus has no place for it. He has place and compassion for those who have need and are willing to be healed. He has not much patience for people that are like, no, I got it all together and it's my club, and some can come in, and some cannot. He has no patience for that. That we would actually work against him to keep people out of the kingdom of God. So then, it's not just Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the supreme ruler. It's also God's son, his only son. Saying that Jesus is God's only son is shorthand for something much deeper. Now, you and I, we are sons and daughters of God, yes, but we're not the son. We're not the daughter. That is unique to Jesus. Jesus. So Reverend Adam Hamilton in his book, Creed, he says, Jesus is not just a son of God, is he? No, but the son of God, unlike any other. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, to make sure everybody gets it. The firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. That means Jesus was with God at creation. Things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through Jesus blowing people's minds. They're like, well, I thought he was just born, you know, 30 years ago. Yes, and? And for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything holds together in Jesus. And people were enthralled with Jesus because he could do stuff that nobody else could do, that they had never seen before. Their minds were blown. He healed the sick. He healed the lame. The blind would see. The deaf would hear. The lame would walk. And when his cousin John asked about this, he's like, is Jesus the Messiah or is there another one? Jesus says, will you tell my cousin? Tell him what, what do you see? Do the blind see? Yes. Do the lame walk? Yes. Do the deaf hear? Yes. What do you think? Nobody else can do that. Of course, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. Jesus could do more than that. He could set people free from demons. He could make nature obey him. And he could even raise the dead, as we see in the story of Lazarus. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible from Mark 4, um, when Jesus shows who he is. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side in these little boats. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. They thought they were going to drown. But in the stem is Jesus fast asleep. Right? He's asleep on a cushion. How dare he? So they woke him up and they said to him, teacher, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? I can just imagine. Jesus like, oh, what? He's like, man, it's kind of windy out here. And he says, peace. Be still. I'm going to go back to sleep. Making my guys nervous. And what do you know? The wind ceased and there was a dead calm. then he says to his friends, "Why why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Jesus is with us, and they were filled with great awe, which is in that in that way it's kind of used as like fear and oh my gosh awe, and said to one another, "Who then is this? Who then is this that even the winds and the and the sea obey him? There's no ordinary man. Who is this? That's Jesus. And having seen miracles, early Christians came to believe that God took on flesh, the incarnation. And came to us in Jesus. God took on flesh and came to us in Jesus. The incarnation allows God to literally meet us on our own ground, to become one of us, to reveal God's self to us in terms that we can understand, in fleshment. Like to talk about, you know, in the flesh. Chili con carne with meat, right? These sorts of things. God, you can touch and see and know in ways that were never possible before. Again, Gonzalez would say, in declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, Christianity affirms its continuity with the faith of Israel. And Christians acknowledge our debt to Abraham and his descendants. Right? We are connected. Jesus is a gift to us through our ancestors. Through Abraham and the Jewish people. And it is important for us to realize, he says, that when we call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, we are claiming and acknowledging that there is a connection between our faith and that of our Jewish neighbors. And it's important we understand this and and, and foster this and care for it and stand up for them when they're persecuted, which they still are. Many of you will remember Rabbi Harris when she was here not too long ago because people are still being shot and killed simply because they're Jewish. We have no place for that in the United Methodist Church. We're very clear about this. Yet for nearly 300 years, the church wrestled with how to make sense of the deity of Christ. You understand that God, until this point, was so other, you couldn't even say his name. You couldn't write his name. It was so holy and other that that they would tie a rope around the priest when he went in to make the sacrifice because they didn't know if he was going to come out or not. Think Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what they're thinking. Right? So in 325... In the Nicene Creed, the council affirmed that Jesus Christ was God from God, light from light, right? True God from true God, begotten, not made, of being one with the Father. Growing up, I learned of being one substance with the Father. So I want you to think about this. Have you ever watched a fire? If, if you're a young man, you have. We just love fire. And, and you build these fires and you see like flame to flame. When do you have one flame and when do you have two? really hard to tell isn't it even the smoke can make something light again it's just amazing so when when do you have one flame and when do you have two it is all of one substance that's what we believe and then we come really to the crux of the matter and that is jesus is not only god's son but he is what we claim as our lord lord the same word used for yahweh the name that could not be spoken so we don't refer to Jesus as a Lord, right, not Downton Abbey, but the Lord, right, all capitals. The same title used for Yahweh, same God, Jesus our Lord. Means he's the boss. He's the one that says so. And so, uh, again, Gonzales would say, when Christians dared to call Jesus our Lord, they were uttering subversive and perhaps even seditious statements they were claiming that there was another Lord besides and even above the emperor. And this would get many of them killed. We know from the writings that many of the early Christians were sawn in two. They were dipped in wax and burned as candles at Roman parties because they would not say that Caesar was Lord because they'd already made allegiance to Jesus, our Lord. Now that sort of commitment, that sort of dedication, that sort of relationship with Almighty God will change and has changed the world for good. So when the Old Testament was being translated from the Hebrew to Greek, and the translators were trying to find the right Greek word for the holy proper name frequently used of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, they settled on the Greek word Kyrios, or Lord. That's what they chose. So when Christians in the New Testament speak of Jesus, the title they most frequently use for Him is Lord. And the same as Yahweh, the same title used for God's proper name throughout the earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so as Lord, sovereign, and supreme ruler, all of this, Messiah, the Christ, Lord, Jesus seeks to reorient our lives as our ruler from being self-centered, which we are naturally, to being God-centered, another-centered, as Jesus was and still is. So in Matthew 22, we get a sense of this. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, these are basically temple religious people, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, right, a Pharisee, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Jesus, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, read it with me, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Okay, Everybody knew this. You, you knew this growing up. It's like now I lay me down to sleep. They, they, everybody knew this. This is the greatest and first commandment. And you can kind of see all the people around nodding their heads like, Yep, that, that's right. And then he says this, And a second is like it. And he's going to quote Leviticus here. Say it with me. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus has the audacity to say this. On these two commandments, just these two, hang all the law and the prophets. Well, if you're a Pharisee and it's your job to tell them what the law and the prophets means, you're out of a job. If, if this is true. I mean, think about it. They had to memorize and know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Some of you have read that, the Torah, the law. And Jesus says all of that is boiled down to this. People were not happy about that. You and I, we can be thrilled about that. Something that we can do through the power of Christ. It is very simple, but it is difficult. So why does all this matter? Why do we talk about it? Well, Christians find God's will by studying the life and teaching of Jesus in the Bible. We know who God is because we know who Jesus is, right? And Jesus is the perfect expression of who God is, what God is like, and what God's will is for our lives. This is how we know who God is. In Jesus, God shows that he cares about the sick, so we care about the sick. The grieving, we care about the grieving. And those who are lost are made to feel small in our world, as Jesus did. And friends, if Jesus is Christ... Messiah, Lord, Supreme Ruler, right? Then Jesus is the person God has chosen to reign on God's behalf. The Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And if Jesus is the only son, not just a son, then Jesus has a special and unique relationship with God like no other. There's only one son. Only son. And if Jesus is our Lord, friends, then we live in the unshakable kingdom of God. With the unshakable king. You have nothing to worry about if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Lord, right? Adam Hamilton says it like this, if Jesus had come from God to represent and reveal God and God's will to humanity, and if in some way Jesus was God's response to the existential questions and struggles we face, then, it is an if-then deal, then his resurrection not only made sense, it was absolutely essential, it's necessary. If Christ was not raised, then evil, hate, sin and death had the final word on that Friday when Jesus was crucified. But Jesus resurrection was God's dramatic way of making clear that none of these things really have the final word, do they? No, they don't. But now it's down to you and me. When I grew up, I was a preacher's kid. And people would, you know, if I had something in my face, you know, an eighty year old woman would be like, Hey, you got something on your face. And then I would smell old lady spit. It was gross. I want not have nothing to do with church. They'd tussle my hair. This was back in the days when the kids stood with their dads uh, and their moms at the receiving line. I, I would meet 300 people on a Sunday that I, that I didn't know, and I'd have to learn all their names. It was a big deal. Everybody was watching, particularly small towns. And I grew up. I was born in Ringling, moved to Prattville, moved to uh, Bartlesville, then down to Guthrie, where I was in high school, got moved out of Guthrie, um, out to Fairview. I talked about that last week. And then, basically, my folks moved on. I went to Oklahoma State. And, and, and. and. I, I, had, I didn't want to have anything to do with that. Um, a lady in Bartlesville asked me if I was going to be a preacher like my dad. And I said, no. Nope. She said, why not? I said, because sermons are boring. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> Trying to work on that one. So... I decided that I was going to not be a preacher under any circumstances, and I would make a difference for God in broadcast journalism. So here's my lovely bride, Chantel, coming to visit me in Waterloo, Iowa, at KWWL. This is my first uh, job. This is an edit bay. And basically, from the time I was 16 um, to the time I was 25, I didn't really care what Jesus had to say about my life. I mean, I cared in general. I, I didn't feel drawn to church. I went to church because my mom was going to ask me on Sunday. And I didn't want to have that conversation, so I would go. But it wasn't what I was all about. And then I was hired by NBC. It was was an amazing experience. Moved back to Tulsa. We went to a revival. The pastor at the revival said at the close, now just close your eyes and ask the Lord what he wants you to do. So we did and before, faster than I could think it and with a, an impression deeper than I've ever felt before, I had this deep impression and, and almost like an audible voice, go to seminary. And I was looking around to see if anybody else heard it. They did not. I was in luck. And so on the drive home, I said to Chantal, I said, I said, I think the Lord asked me to go to seminary. What do you think? And she goes, oh, yeah, I've always thought that. I was like, you were killing me. <laughs> so then I was, I was like, Okay. My dad had graduated from Southern Methodist University in 1959. Um, we had let it slip that this had happened. Now my dad and my wife were on me and my mom, and I was still kind of pushing away. I'd not uh, applied, and so I was just—I was trying to make it go away. My folks were coming over for dinner. Uh, at our little place, it was sort of like a little ski chalet, a little duplex uh, with a, a bedroom upstairs and the dining area downstairs and a big stairway and a, and a fireplace at the bottom with the stone all the way up. You, you kind of seen those things. And because my folks were coming and I wanted to look like an adult, you know, because I was 24, 25, I cleaned out the fireplace um, from a fire we'd had a couple of days before. And I put in the kindling and stuff. It, we, we were not fancy enough to have, you know, gas. We just, I was making it because I was a Boy Scout. I know how to do this stuff. And so, put that in. I go upstairs to change. My folks come in. I hear them come in. And my dad, first thing out of the bat, he yells up the stairs, Hey, Mark. I'm like, yeah, Dad. I come out. Like, yeah, Dad. He says, have you thought any more about seminary? I'm like, this is going to be a long night. And at the very moment that he said, "Have you thought any more about going to seminary?" I looked down and I watched the fire in that fireplace go (laughs) on its own. And I thought, "Hold on a minute." And then I thought, "My parents are so rude. I can handle the temperature here." Did they start? I said, "Dad, did you start a fire in my fireplace?" He goes, "No." And I looked at my wife and I said, "Chantel, did you did you start the fire?" She goes, "No." And I looked at my mom, she was just like, I don't know. know." Like, and I got the very real sense that if I didn't go to seminary, God was going to burn my house down. <laughs> like, he was just tired of waiting on me. He had told me from the time I was little all the way through, and he had had enough. And I had to make a decision whether he was going to be Lord or not. And, and make no mistake, friends, I'd said no hundreds of times about this issue. And then that day... Out of awe, maybe out of fear, maybe I don't know what I I yielded, and now I'm your pastor, J- friends. Jesus is Lord. The question is, will He be our Lord? That's important for you, whatever thing you're wrestling with today. Ask Him; He's good. So our action step, friends, is you don't have to be afraid. When you wake up in the morning, remember the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, truly, and say, say it with me. I live in the unshakable kingdom of God with the unshakable king. Yeah, I, Jared Parnell's. Uh, we're doing a study at School of Kingdom Living. He made that up. I stole it from him. It's so good, though, isn't it? You and I, we live in an unshakable kingdom because we serve the unshakable Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. It's good. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.